Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I don't know about you, but for me, middle school was horrible. I arrived at an all-male school in a very homophobic era as a small, nervous Michael Jackson fanatic. Don't worry, I'm going somewhere with this. For three years, life was hell. Then I found my tribe, the drama nerds. Maybe we couldn't beat you up, but you had to respect the artistry. In high school, tribalism was power. My guest today is Yale Law professor Amy Chua, who shook the internet up a few years back with her book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. What upset some progressive American parents most, it seems, was the suggestion that they were members of a parenting tribe, a cultural bubble with its own fallible set of assumptions. In her powerful new book, Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations, Amy points out that long past high school, group instinct is much stronger than Americans generally like to admit, and that this cognitive blind spot has led to our repeatedly shooting ourselves in the foot at home and abroad. Welcome to Think Again, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. So I think let's start with the cultural bubble that I and maybe many members of this audience occupy, which is the progressive liberal American or Western cultural bubble. It's not comfortable for us to think of ourselves as a tribe, but you're, you're very clear about the ways in which tribal instinct is alive and well there. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, the entire Enlightenment project, the American experiment was, in a sense, a way to overcome tribalism. You know, these beautiful concepts that I love, democracy, individualism, right. rule of law, even free markets, right? This is a way that we are going to get away from sectarian, religious warfare, ethnic, all these old-fashioned things that people killed each other for. The problem is we're hardwired to be tribal. And, and just so many studies now show this. I, I run through them. Some of them show that it's neurological. It doesn't mean that we can't resist it, but our default is to be very tribal. And once we connect to a tribe, we want to cling to it and we want to defend that tribe almost no matter what. And, you know, you can actually, a great example is sports. Okay. I mean, that's such a benign example. And I guess you were a drama nerd, but you probably... I'm, I know nothing about sports, but many people in the world do. So lead on. <laughs> well, so people who care about a certain team, whether it's the New England Patriots or the Dallas Cowboys or soccer in Europe, people will kill and die for those teams. You know, right. And they also feel that their team is morally superior and no matter what the umpire says, they see the facts their way through the lens of their tribe. Right. And what's dangerous is, uh, you know, sports is a benign example. It's when it creeps into other parts of our lives. So for the progressive left, or you call them the elite in, in the book, which always makes my skin crawl, but that's because I'm a member of this particular Me bubble. Me too. Um, but what would you say are some of the biggest blind spots there? Well, you named one of them. First of all, we don't think of ourselves as elites or tribal. Right. Right? We think of ourselves as the opposite. We care about equality. We care about the world and cosmopolitan values. In fact, that's why a lot of us or a lot of, I don't know, progressive elites don't like patriotism and flag waving. It seems so American centric. You know, we should right. be thinking more globally, and you can see this. So the some of the blind spots, first of all, we don't realize how snobby and insular and tribal we are. Right. And again, some of this is backed up by the statistics I put in there. We literally are like an ethnic group. We, we intermarry and interact only with each other. 
we don't see it because it's, look, my kids are half Jewish and half Chinese. All of my friends seem to be a quarter of everything. Right. And so we feel so open-minded. We're part Muslim, part Irish, part Japanese, part atheist, part everything. And we feel, and that's true. There's something, I, I happen to think that that's a great way for humanity to go. But the problem is we look at other people who don't have those values as just backwards. And not only that, we actually don't interact with them and we don't intermarry with them. It's, we just replicate. Yeah, this is the uncomfortable question. You know, it's sort of, can we at the same time value education, right? And the, and the sort of enlightenment principles that seem to proceed from rational, critical thinking, from exposure to a wide range of ideas and sort of have our cake and eat it too and say, well, you know, half of the world isn't like that and isn't thinking like that. And that's, that's how that is. I mean, that, I, that, I don't suppose that's what you're saying. No, I, first of all, I, I guess part of the point of the book is that we just have to confront tribalism. Right. It's there, you know, um, taking this to foreign policy. I mean, one of the critiques is again, same idea. We have this um, romanticization of democracy. So we're going into Iraq, we're deposing this awful dictator, and then we just didn't pay attention to any of the <laughs> right. groups on Sunni, Shias, Kurds. I, it's, it's shocking to learn how little we actually knew. People didn't speak the language. And the idea was, we're just going to have some elections. And part of this honestly stems, well, it stems from the best of America and the worst of America. The good thing that it represents is we really have been a country that's been unusually successful at assimilation, especially of European groups. You know, so the idea is, look, if Italians and Germans and Poles and Hungarians and Jews could all become Americans within right. one or two generations— hey, why can't the Kurds and the Sunnis and Shias, right? Right, and, and aren't they just champing at the bit to do it already? They, yes, like, they're <laughs> going to be so grateful. Right? So that's part of it. It's almost this naivete at the ability of democracy and markets to sweep away these tribal identities. The other part of it is it reflects something much more negative about ourselves, and that is, um, I hate this term because it's overused, but racism. So in the Vietnam War, we completely missed that the capitalists in Vietnam actually weren't even Vietnamese. They were, right. they belonged to this outsider hated Chinese minority. But for American policymakers, even people on the ground, it was like Chinese, Vietnamese, Japanese, all the same. They're yeah, just and, all gooks. And I want to pause here to say that there is this concept in your book, which is of a market dominant minority, right? Which is the idea that a small ethnic or cultural subset is powerful in the country and that there's a great deal of resentment against them for that. Yes, there's a phenomenon of market dominant minorities that is actually historically um, much more prevalent in developing countries, like the 3% Chinese in Indonesia who control 70% of the corporate economy, or you know, 10% whites in South Africa who under apartheid controlled everything. Right. Um, and or they're the actually, elites in America, as or, you pointed yes, out. Yes, and that's a, that's a more, we can come back to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. in developing countries, it's more stark because it's often just racial or ethnic. Like these are different ethnic groups. Right, right. So it's also this idea that we can fix all these other countries. For example, in Afghanistan, I mean, there are so many ethnicities in Afghanistan and an incredible tribal network. And we kind of just went in there thinking, we're going to, fight these fundamentalists. We just lumped them all together right. after 9-11. These are a bunch of fundamentalists, the Taliban. Well, what's interesting is that the Taliban is also an ethnic movement. And right. even now, this doesn't get a lot of play. 
all the members of the Taliban belong to this group called the Pashtuns, or at least most of them. And this is a group that founded Afghanistan and historically dominated and controlled everything. And starting around the Cold War, they started to lose their power or be afraid they were going to lose their power. And the Taliban was in some ways a response to these fears that they were losing power. And we just blithely came in after 9-11 not knowing any of this. And we we set up governments and systems that actually seemed to favor their rival ethnic groups, the Tajiks and the Uzbeks. And all the time that we're doing this, thinking we're just going to put in some democratic and rule of law institutions, we just, we were just shooting ourselves in the foot. So in terms of foreign policy, do you think that America's approach should be paternalistic in the sense of trying to pursue the goals that we have been trying to pursue abroad, but just doing them more strategically with awareness of the ethnic and other tensions that are on the ground, or that we should have a completely different diplomatic approach entirely? Interesting question. I think I would flip it. I mean, I sort of feel like whatever our foreign policy is going to be, right? I mean, some people are going to be more interventionists for human rights uh, issues. Others are going to be more for markets. Others are going to be isolationists. What I'm saying is that no matter what your preference is, you've got to know the societies that you're trying to right. relate to, right? You, it can't be worse, right? You, you, you need to have an informed decision. And frankly, that might then answer the first question. Because I think part of the reason that we've intervened a lot in a lot of these countries is because we thought it was going to be so easy. In Iraq, we thought we were going to be out of there in about a year. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a decade and so many lives lost. So I think first, just being aware of the group identities that matter most to the countries that we're supposedly trying to help, and then take it from there. I mean, general American ignorance of the world is one thing. What for you explains these consistent failures of foreign policy, you know, that are being led by Ivy League, maybe educated upper level diplomats why 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 have they failed to understand this repeatedly you know I, mean, I think that's a great question and i think it goes back to how um, unaware a lot of America's elites are of their own tribalism. We we tend to think of grand ideological battles. First it right. was capitalism versus communism. So we're going in there heroes Forget that there are all these ethnic and tribal things going on, but we are going to be the saviors of capitalism. And then we shifted to authoritarianism versus democracy. That was the next stage. We're going to democratize everybody. Former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Indonesia, we're going to bring elections. And we tend to romanticize democracy in particular, partly because we have had such great success with it. We are a country, where to put it bluntly, For almost 200 years, we were dominated economically, politically, and culturally by a white majority. I mean, obviously, white is a moving target, but it's it's essentially, that's the dynamic. And that is, it's politically very stable in a sort of invidious way. If you have one group that's just so dominant and you keep having elections, you don't, you know, you don't get this kind of turbulence. So I think we thought we could just replicate it. Let's go to Afghanistan, the Philippines, (laughs) all these other countries just transplant these democratic institutions. And the most recent one has been the fight against terrorism. All we thought is we're going to take out the terrorists. 
So we have this gigantic category of these guys. Islamic terrorists. Whereas that's a very, very big group with a lot of important group identities beneath that. The Sunni-Shia divide is a great one. I mean, the fact that ISIS is largely, is is basically a Sunni movement that wants to wipe out not just Westerners, but also Shias. Revenge of Saddam, right? I mean, it is in a sense a legacy of the toppling of the Sunni minority in Iraq. Completely. And and this is a pattern. And it's it's actually um, what I enjoy doing. It doesn't require... You don't have to be a brain scientist just to do the demographics as soon as you pay attention to the groups, okay? So you're like, the Sunnis are about a 15% minority, right. and they've held the power undemocratically for 100 years. Now we're going to empower the majority that is 60%. You know, once you start thinking of it that way, it, it's really not that surprising that the newly empowered, very, very long-oppressed Shia majority used their, they weaponized their vote yeah. to, to, to exact revenge. It's also human nature. What is going on at home uh, in America? You've talked about, you talk in the book about the sort of tribal fragmentation that's happening here along the lines of identity politics and how the right, which has historically vilified the in- whole concept of identity politics, is now engaging in what uh, Van Jones called a white lash well, first of all, identity politics is this overused term, and to the, if it just means social movements based on certain group identities, we've always had it. Um, but still, there is something that is fundamentally different right now, and part of it has to do with the massive demographic change that we are undergoing. Because of the recent huge influx of immigrants, and not from Europe now, but mostly from Latin America, Asia, and, and, and Africa, we are seeing what people have called the browning of America, and whites are now on the verge of no longer being a majority in this country. So what happens is that everybody today is threatened. You know, before, whites weren't threatened. There was no reason for them to be. Um, And when you're so comfortably dominant, you can do terrible things, but you can also afford to be more generous. The problem now is that it's not just blacks were threatened, whites feel threatened. You know, there, there are studies that show that they feel they are subject, I think it's 60% feel they are subject to more discrimination than, than minorities. Right. Uh, it's not just Muslims and Jews who feel threatened. Christians today feel threatened. It's not just women who feel threatened. Men with the Me Too movement feel threatened. Straights and gays feel threatened. Latinos, Asians, everybody in this country, because we're at this point of equipoise. And part of this, honestly, I think is a good thing. This sounds terrible, but it's sort of this natural thing that happens when long suppressed voices and group identities finally get to express themselves. Right. Right. So it felt very stable and, oh, we had no tribalism before, but that's just because you had one big tribe dominating. So it felt like there was no tribalism. So that's part of it, that everybody's threatened now. And when groups are threatened, that's when they get more insular, more defensive, and more tribal. They retreat, they close ranks. That's part one. The second thing that's happening in America today, race has split America's poor and class has split America's white majority. So a big phenomenon that is often missed when people just talk about, oh, America's a white supremacist country. Of course, there are elements of that. But 
there is a very big divide among the whites in this country now, right? You couldn't call them roughly the urban, you know, multicultural, cosmopolitan whites who live on the coast or California or Chicago versus what is often called, I don't know, rural, heartland, southern whites, more that includes more working class whites. The difference between these two groups, it's almost like an ethnic difference. They just don't intermarry anymore, as we talked about. Right. And they also don't speak the same language. I mean, Working on a college campus, I am very aware of the kind of vocabulary to use. You know, all the different terms, you know, recently when to use Latinx instead of Latina, Latino. It's and it's it's a learning process. So I think, you know, if you're just somebody from, I don't know, you know, Alabama or Idaho, and you refer to a certain group a certain way, even nothing incendiary, but it's just not the way that is now accepted, right. that instantly they sound racist or sexist or horrible. And I think this really contributed to Donald Trump being so popular. They heard him being attacked by all these people saying that he was racist for this or sexist for that. And whereas most of us just felt like, yeah, that sounds awful. I can't believe he said that. For them, it's like, you know what? I don't think it was so bad. Like I've said that before and people have jumped all over my case. And (laughs) so he's actually relatable for a lot of people who are kind of tired of being called out all the time. They feel persecuted. But and you were saying that it's a good thing in a way that these tensions are coming to the fore and that people are expressing these resentments and so on. But what's also happening, it seems, is that we're getting more and more from each of these groups, a narrative of like, you cannot understand, you will never understand, you do not, as you said, speak my language, which is a narrative of there is no way for us to bridge that divide. Exactly. So here's what would be good. It's good for long oppressed tribes and groups to finally be able to express themselves. And if it makes people a little uncomfortable, we just have to deal with that. That's just kind of exposing the truth. Right. Here's what's not good. When we become only tribal, so much so that it's exclusionary. So it's like, you can't talk about this because you can't possibly understand me. Now, half of that is correct. There has been a lot of mansplaining or whitesplaining. And I've experienced this myself, honestly, you know, right. where suddenly some Caucasian person will correct my Chinese pronunciation or oh tell me God. how to make <laughs> this Chinese dish. And I just want to say, you know, my instinct, it's human. It's like, you don't get to do that. <laughs> you know? right. So I get it. I get it. But the problem is that if we're going to hang together as a country so that we still allow all these tribes to, to speak, but we still are a country that's cohesive, that stands for certain values, we've got to find a way to talk to each other. We can't have a situation where people on the other side of the political divide aren't just people we disagree with. I mean, that's fine. But they're actually, we view them as immoral enemies, right? right? Because it's, then we're they're not even fellow Americans at that point. And I I think that's just really dangerous. And I think it's because I study developing countries that I I really feel that um, many people in America on both sides of the political divide don't realize that they're playing with fire, you know, because it just seems like, hey, we're just standing up for the right thing. But I've just been studying countries like the former Yugoslavia and, you know, Venezuela, which is now practically a failed state, and right. Indonesia, where, you know, there are riots and killings. And it's just um, tribalism is has a real dark side. And once these dynamics get going, it's very hard to stop. We had Michio Kaku on this show last week, and he was giving us an evolutionary perspective on tribalism and talking about how in earlier primate phases, we needed to learn 
pro-sociality and that it, it serves that purpose in holding the group together and so on. But do you not see tribalism within that kind of evolutionary narrative? Do you not agree that tribalism is something that, to a great extent, humanity will need to leave behind at some point? I don't think it's possible. I think that the best we can do is tame it <laughs> and work with it. Another great example um, is an experiment I describe in the book where um, researchers just gave um, a bunch of children between the ages of, I think, four and eight. They said, okay, we divide you into two teams, your red team and blue team. And they gave right. you know, T-shirts of the corresponding colors. It was fascinating. They put these kids in front of computer dockets, and they showed them computer-edited pictures of children wearing either blue T-shirts or red T-shirts. And astonishingly, even though the children never saw these children before, they didn't know anything about them, they consistently reported that they liked the students on their team better, that they were better people, right. that they were smarter, and they wanted to allocate more resources to it. And the scariest thing is they were told stories about these two groups, and the researchers found that they displayed subconscious, unconscious preferences that later when asked to recall, they would remember all these good things about people wearing their color and way more bad things about people wearing the other color. So if we don't work at it, but I agree with you, I guess I, I'm an enlightenment person. <laughs> I teach at a university. I think that's why we want democracy. We want the rule of law. I think these are laudable and honorable goals and that we should not give up. Right. I am pro rule of law and democracy. You know, I've practically devoted my life to these things, but I don't think the way you implement that is just by shipping in some ballot boxes to Kazakhstan, <laughs> you know, or copying our own laws, Xeroxing them and emailing them to, to Tibet. You know, I mean, you really do have to take seriously the groups and uh, identities that are already there and then work with them and maybe hope that you can you can build something. You know, Rome wasn't right. built in a day. I mean, the fact that we want something to be the case doesn't mean that it's already the case. And additionally, we ourselves are exhibiting the same exact behaviors exactly. that we're denying in others. Exactly. Well, this is what's so interesting <laughs> about our current moment. I think for a long time, we thought we were immune from a lot of these, quote unquote, third world dynamics. You know, we saw oh my gosh, demagogues and populism and ethno-nationalist movements. Well, we're seeing our own version right now. I mean, it's it's not exact. We're a country of immigrants. We're not an ethnic nation. But there are strong parallels. You also see uh, lurches towards authoritarianism, which is a very predictable thing. When you see populism in developing countries, you often see the elite backlashing against the populist side of democracy. So right now in America, there are all these people talking about, believe it or not, knowledge requirements for voting. You know, like maybe if we okay. required some education limits, maybe we wouldn't have had President Trump elected. I mean, they're actually, and wow. I just, however much I understand the frustration I do not think suppression of any voters is the way to go right now. Um, and this is something, believe it or not, that the Latin American elites have been talking about for many, many generations, because it's been a real problem for them, where they have people knowing very little about policy voting in people like Hugo Chavez, because, you know, they related to him. And, and you know, obviously the country is in a, in a tragic situation right now. I mean, I would say that democracy without education doesn't really look much like what we think of as democracy. Exactly. But the, <laughs> the result 
the, the solution, I think, is we need a real conversation. Right. Um, one thing we can't do is just define democracy in a way that suits our desires. But I've seen right. people try to do this. I mean, at a minimum, democracy requires some aspect of majority rule, right? You don't want pure majority rule. Our founders developed a whole constitution to check against excessive majoritarian zeal. Right. But if you don't have any majority rule, that's just called a dictatorship. If you're thinking about setting education limits for voting, you need to fix your education system first. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right. I think this is a good place for us to move on to the second half of the show. So Amy and I are going to watch surprise clips from Big Think's archives of past video interviews um, and see where the conversation goes from there. So this is from academic and author Michael Norton, and the video is called Understanding the Complex Relationship Between Money and Happiness. My colleague uh, Liz Dunn at the University of British Columbia and I have been studying the relationship between money and happiness. And it seems like a simple relationship, which is we want more money and we want more happiness, So maybe if we get more money, we'll get more happiness. And it turns out that the relationship is really a lot more complicated than that. It's not too surprising to say that money can't buy you happiness. We've heard that phrase a lot, but that doesn't help us understand then what kind of spending will actually make us happy and what kind won't. What we tend to find when we look at the data is that the biggest category of things that people spend on is stuff for themselves. Of course, we need to pay rent or our mortgage. We need to have a car. We need to have food and clothes. But it seems as though people are spending an inordinate amount of their money on stuff for themselves. And the biggest problem from our standpoint as psychologists is the percent of money that you spend on stuff for yourself is completely uncorrelated with how happy you are with your life. It doesn't make you unhappy. It's not like if you buy a lot of stuff, you're miserable, which sometimes we think is the case. It's just the case that it's flat. No matter how much it seems you buy for yourself, nothing really seems to happen. And so in our research and other researchers as well, we've tried to look at, well, if stuff for yourself doesn't pay off, are there other things that you can spend your money on that actually do pay off in more happiness? And what Liz and I have focused on the most is this idea that instead of focusing on yourself all the time, which doesn't seem to pay off in happiness, when you focus on other people, you sort of reverse the arrow from me to you, it seems that on average when people give to others, which can be giving to charity, it can be treating a friend to lunch, it can be buying people gifts, that those actions of giving rather than keeping seem to be associated with more happiness. And when we send people out and give them money and tell them to spend it on themselves or spend it on somebody else, people who spend on themselves kind of have the same day they would have had anyway, but people who spend on other people actually have a happier day. So if you think about the idea that stuff for yourself doesn't make you happy, you can think of two opposites of that. One is stuff for other people, so that's kind of giving makes you happier than keeping. But another opposite of stuff for yourself is to think about changing. You can still spend on yourself, but change from stuff to something else. And lots of research over the last decade has shown that on average, when people buy experiences, it tends to pay off in more happiness than buying stuff for themselves. So he's talking about large statistical studies. But I'm curious, you know, for yourself, does this ring true? What comes to mind for you in your own yeah, experience? Yeah, it, it really rings true to me. <laughs> I think there are a couple things to me that are a little conflated there. Um, okay. I think buying experience 
to me, that's quite a different phenomenon. That could have to do actually with just being privileged. You've just bought too many pairs of shoes and purses and you you want a different kind of thrill and also feel not so guilty about yourself. Somehow it feels like more like I'm one with nature. When you're buying a thing, like when you imagine like, oh, I really, if I, if only I had that pair of shoes, I would be feeling so much cooler or whatever it might be. Right. Um, then when you get the pair of shoes, like you spend a certain amount of time, like, yay, the shoes, the shoes, the shoes, you get the shoes and for about a day you feel cooler and then the shoes are just shoes. Right. Right. Whereas an experience, uh, in terms of how it lives in your memory and kind of blends into the narrative of your life. That's a different thing. I think that's right. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big experienced person. But, you know, it does relate to our, our issue of tribalism and, and elites in a way, because to me, this rings very true, just because it's kind of like all the people I know. You, I notice a huge uh, movement to baking right now. And huh. I think it's kind of weirdly related, because if you're, I'm not talking about super rich people, but people who can afford to get like a $5 croissant or something. Right. I'm an immigrant's kid. I'm, I can't believe what my kids pay for the Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> coffee. I'm like, make it yourself. I, I remember I, you know, the first time I got this fancy dessert, like this petite four, we just loved it. It was the best thing we ever had. Right. But if you can, if you're used to it, like you're, you're allowed to come home from school and just buy one of these expensive things. It loses its value and charm. And then I think baking, you're, it's like the experience. You're invested. You're creating something. It's even, you're even saving money. You're, you're artistic. And it actually couples the two things because you rarely bake just for yourself. Right. You rarely bake just one cookie. <laughs> right? Yeah, that would it's, be weird. You're doing, it, you're doing it to share. So right. you're getting, also getting whatever that benefit is that Absolutely. we get out of, out of generosity. I, I think it's very interesting, though. I always find it somewhat problematic thinking of generosity from a happiness perspective. Like it seems yes. so, it seems so instrumentalist, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it would also be fun to go back again to the class dimension because I'm sure their survey was great, and right. but it would be interesting to see if you asked a lot of people who were had worked three jobs, more working uh, blue collar jobs. Uh, whether they'd have the same view about money. And, you know, I mean, I wonder if it's a little bit of a diminishing marginal return thing. If you have so much of it, then it's just not making you any more happy. That's right. I mean, mean, yeah, you need to have a certain amount of disposable income also to be even considering charity. Right. And, you know, I'm reading Steven Pinker's new book, and he's talking about the effective altruism movement, which is looking at what, kinds of giving actually improve the lives of other people as opposed to just enhancing the warm glow of yes. the giver. <laughs> yes. Well, that's related to the political tribalism, the cosmopolitan elites. Sometimes I think that's easier for them to empathize with the global poor because it's easier for them to romanticize them, right? Because right. you don't actually have to see and work and, and hear what they're saying. And, and then it gets mixed up with this notion that somehow the poor people abroad are all living in some sort of more pure communal natural state that's been lost in the first world. Whereas, as you point out in the book, I think the same would be true for them as for many poor Americans. If they get some money, they might very well want to have a Mercedes if they could, you know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this, uh, the, the whole kind of natural, let's be natural, neutral tones, nothing gaudy, is actually very part of this coastal elite. It's, a, it's kind of an aesthetic, right. you know, um, not leopard skin, huge fake diamonds. But that there's a snobism. Even even in the way we think about that. And actually, you know, I spent some time in Bolivia and 
Poverty actually comes with a lot of plastic goods and Coca-Cola. McDonald's is cheap. It's it's not so great. <laughs> Fruit is expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's see what what the second okay. video is. And here we have Derek Thompson, an editor and writer at The Atlantic, talking about what constitutes coolness. It's an interesting question. What is coolness? And it's sort of uh, impossible to define, but sociologists have tried. And their definition, I think, is really useful. Their definition is that coolness is a measured, positive rebellion against an illegitimate mainstream. And like thinking of that all in one big pile is a little bit complicated, but when you disentangle it, it makes a lot of sense. It is a measured, small rebellion, a little difference or distinction from a mainstream that is considered illegitimate or bad. Coolness is a response to a mainstream. It is in many ways very similar to the sociological definition of a cult. A cult is also a measured rebellion to a mainstream that is considered illegitimate. Maybe the best way to think about this definition is to think about it through the lens of dress codes for high schools, right? Um, Lots of high schoolers, when they attend a school that has a dress code, they try to break from that code, but only in ways that are measured and positive, right? So if the dress code says you have to wear a coat with a tie and a button-up shirt, maybe they'll undo the tie a bit or wear a hat or undo their button-up shirt. They'll have measured, measured rebellions to that illegitimate mainstream. But it's not cool to go to school naked. It's not cool to go to school dressed in some, like, you know, like some sort of weird superhero for Tuesday. That's not a measured rebellion. That is outright rebellion, and that is not considered cool. So you need a measured rebellion, number one. But number two, the mainstream has to be considered illegitimate in the first place in order for the action to be considered cool. So in one study, these researchers did something really clever. They told a bunch of students who, are, who were you know, departing from the mainstream uh, dress code in, in various ways. They told them the dress code was uh, initiated to honor a high school graduate who had died overseas in a war. Now, suddenly, that dress code wasn't illegitimate. It was a con completely legitimate way for people to honor a fallen soldier, and fewer students considered departing from that dress code to be cool. So it's very important to think when defining coolness that you need two parts. First, you need a mainstream that is considered bad. People need to agree that the mainstream is bad. And two, you need the rebellion to be positive and measured. It can't be crazy. It can't be insane. And when you have those two things together, you have cool. The difference between that which we consider cool and that which we consider cultish, because they're relatively similar things, they're both departing from a mainstream, is essentially degree. That cults are all designed around this idea that most human beings or most people in society don't get you or they don't get this important thing. They're not religious enough, they're not thoughtful enough, they're not environmental enough. That has to be sort of the first principle of that cult. But we reserve the word cult for essentially groups that are too far away from the mainstream to be considered a measured rebellion from it. And so I think that's exactly the right way to think about coolness versus cultishness, is that we're all part of cults. We're all part of some, we all disagree with some aspect of mainstream social or political thought. But, the, but whether or not other people consider us cool or cultish essentially depends on whether they think that we are departing from that mainstream in a way that is measured 
and positive. It's, it's interesting to think about people like rock stars or mu- music stars, because um, I, feel, I feel like some of them are a little bit more than measured. Yeah. Um, I yeah, mean, that's like, right. Like, like I think yeah, David Johnny Bowie. Rotten or, yeah, yeah. Like, was pretty, I think people think David Bowie was pretty cool. He he had me going, and he he did something really smart there because I was thinking, oh, I got him. This makes Trump cool because right. a lot of the people that voted who voted for him thought the establishment is not legitimate. Right. He was and, a maverick. Right. So, but 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 he doesn't quite fit because I don't think it's a measured rebellion yeah i'm not it's a sure massive <laughs> yeah that's right i mean first of all yeah that's right i mean in, in high school it's one thing i mean you'll get kicked out of yeah. high school if you go too wild but i think that cool branches off in a number of directions and i think cool is actually a really interesting cultural yeah. concept um that is like underexplored because yeah. it's you know it's a youth concept or whatever but for one thing it seems like cool is about vulnerability and sort of being in invulnerable right i mean we all feel awkward and insecure on a private level and yes. then we're thrust out into the world and yeah. we have to deal with other people and it's in that context that you learn to be cool oh cool yeah absolutely cool is a little bit of an i don't care affect i mean some people are naturally born like some people have to work at cool Right. right. I mean, look, I was the same kind of high school student you were, right? Like <laughs> okay. a, the nerdy Chinese person who last person picked for every team. I happen to think it builds character to have not been cool for your childhood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it was like a total Darwinian, you know, struggle. And then, I mean, I still don't think I was cool when I was a drama kid. You know, we, we were out there. You found your tribe. But it's yeah, you're yeah. cool because you're doing something that nobody else, yeah. that the others don't do. Yeah. It took me a lot longer than that, I think. I, I actually eventually found a way of making being an outsider, which I always I always felt like an outsider. I grew up in Indiana the first eight years. No Chinese kids. We had the funny accents. I had right. to bring the thermos in with the Chinese food <laughs> in it. And I just never, and my parents were strict, so I went to high school. I couldn't stay out late. And I finally think in my later adult life, learned to turn being an outsider into a source of strength. I mean, every book I've ever written, I, I somebody was psychoanalyzing me, is a way about, in a way turning this being an outsider and looking at the strong side. So market yeah. dominant minorities, right? right? I'm not right. looking at victims. I'm actually looking at minorities who are very strong or economically strong. So Indeed. yeah, I don't, I don't think I ever achieved the cool part. Going back to Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, like, yeah, that was a pretty punk move to come out in public at a moment when, you know, there was such strong solidarity, I think, among progressive, predominantly white Americans. Yeah, I think probably more stupidity and naivete on my part. I mean, people don't believe it. Like they think, I see, (laughs) I read stuff about myself. Amy Chu is this master marketer. I, I'll tell you, my daughters, We I was nobody when I wrote this thing. I was an academic. Um, and they said, Mom, what is this? Nobody's going to read this because <laughs> you're not a famous person. Nobody's going to want to read this memoir or whatever it is. So we, like, I, you know, had no social media. So, yeah, but you know But what? it was such a lightning rod. I mean, it, it just... was. But you're right. You know, after, after I emerged three years later intact, it did kind of turn to be viewed as cool by some people. I mean, in retrospect, it feels like, wow, it's cool that I survived that, that I did that. People who didn't read the book focused on sort of lurid moments. But the main point, I think, 
is what I was saying in the introduction, which is that you kind of like held a mirror up to a particular culture of parenting and pointed out that it's not infallible. You I know, love it's not, that. I've never heard anybody say that, um, describe it that way, but I love it and it, the way it links it together. Uh, you know, it's also, there's a universal side to it too, which is if people did read the book, you'd see that at the end, it's actually about, so it starts off really cocky, right? This one voice, like <laughs> right. this is the way. But at the end, my younger daughter totally rebels. I feel like I'm gonna lose her. My sister gets leukemia and has to have a bone marrow transplant. So it's a little bit about like, wait, what's important in life? Like, do we really care about the the, the violin or not? You know, right. so, so are there universal themes too? But, but I've long gotten over it. Like, I'm like, now I feel like, okay, so people misunderstood it, but I'd opened a lot of opportunities for me too. Sure. And, um, um, you know, no regrets. Let's return briefly to the theme of cool before yeah. we wind it up here. I do understand that this exists, this sort of small rebellion against a disliked majority. That That is one aspect of cool, I think. But I still think that the vast majority of people, whether they are counterculture or not, want to feel cool, that, that that they're going around kind of fronting, in a sense, all the time. I mean, even, even in the morning when I put on sunglasses to go out the door, <laughs> we want this protection yeah, from one another. Yeah, that's a great question. Because he's, he, we'd, I'd love to ask the guy, he seems really smart, whether <laughs> he's talking about real cool or this part of our culture that is actually closely related to bullying. Right. You know, like when you think about what's considered cool in high school contexts, right. it's actually very suffocating. The cool group. Sometimes that's that's the dominant exactly. group. I mean, so I most conformist sometimes. Right. Yeah. I mean, I like branched off into the goths, and yeah. we were cool <laughs> because we were, you know, dressing in all black and we were deep and literary. But that's not cool in the same way that the football team were cool. Yeah. Like that, those are both cool, but in very different ways. Exactly. Like from, from the inside. Yeah, in fact, I, I wonder, now we, if you were here, we would push him on his definition, right? Because certainly these groups that are called the cool crowd, um, right. I tend to think are very afraid of what other people will think of them. So they all kind of look the same. There's one cool haircut you do. It's like a Mean Girls. Right. You know, this is the, oh my God, these are the new in shoes. We all got to get them. So but it's, it's yeah. But that sort of cool tribalism is basically inescapable in a way because it's really hard to be just yourself in yeah. terms of self-expression. I mean, either you're sort of non-conforming along with a group yeah. or you're conforming, as you said, to the sort of like non-ostentatious clothing that yeah. that is somehow supposed to demonstrate that you're beyond categories, but is actually part of your progressive right. elite category. Right. I mean, it's really hard to escape yeah. Tribalism yeah. at the level of cool. And it's so interesting to think <laughs> of it along ethnic lines, too. When I just kind of think of Asian Americans, a group that I mentor a lot and work and know very well at Yale, there are so many different ways of being cool. Mm. They're very conscious, too. Right. That, that's what's funny about the, I think I like his measured rebellion. Okay, the ones that just came over from China definitely have certain kind of not so cool haircuts and it's right. almost like a way of distinguishing yourself like you know we you know my family's been here for for a long time you know just more gel and stuff. right and so it's important i think to think about everything in that way i mean i caught myself not long ago looking at someone's louis vuitton bag and just i caught my brain going 
oh God, another person with that same yeah. damn Louis Vuitton bag. What's wrong with these people? Why do they all want the same bag? But like, right. then you're just viewing it completely from yeah. your own subculture that Ex thinks it's not cool to conform. Oh, that's a great point. Know? I mean, like my older daughter decided that she wanted to get a tattoo. Okay. Right. So my whole big thing, uh, actually, I love it now. I think it's, I think it looks cool. But at the time I was horrified. <laughs> and what I, the line of argument I used was, but you just think that you're being cool. But do you know how conventional that is it was like right. The, right. right right so um but so, she yeah. but she you know there's some set of cultural associations that's making her feel warm and fuzzy about the idea of having a tattoo that's going to make her and feel actually it was kind of cool there was nobody else in her crowd that had it oh okay all right is it a good tattoo what yeah is it? you know at least it's a math symbol it's one of these like cones <laughs> no that's good i think that's the kind appropriate for tiger mother you don't necessarily have to like laser remove oh, later well uh, Amy Chua, I've really enjoyed this conversation. This was so a lot much of fun. fun. And Amy's new book is Political Tribes, Group Instinct, and the Fate of Nations. I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's really important right now and sheds very specific insight on our cultural moment. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. If you're new to the show or if you've been with us for a long time but you've never gotten around to it, I would really personally appreciate it if you could just take a couple minutes of your time and go rate and or review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. Uh, it makes a major difference in terms of who can discover the show. And we'll be back next week with something completely different. Hope you can join us.